We want to welcome the Holy Spirit here this morning to move among us, to move in any way that he feels he wants to. We welcome his presence today. I'm going to ask that as a way of getting things of the week behind us and putting our thoughts on the scriptures today, that we all together just take a deep breath, breathe in as deep as you can, and then exhale. Our Lord said, come to me, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father, we thank you for this day, for this time to come to worship you corporately. And we do ask you to use this time just now to clear our minds completely of the problems from last week, the worries about the coming week, and help us to focus on you, the object of our worship. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at, this is week three, of what happens after the resurrection. I'm calling this little mini-series, What Now? The first week we looked at Jesus on the very night of the resurrection, coming to where the disciples had gathered together and breathing the Holy Spirit on them to send them out. There was one disciple that was not present at that meeting, and that was Thomas. And Thomas just couldn't believe what had Happened and what the other disciples were telling him. So the next week, last week, we looked at doubting Thomas. What do we do when we doubt? How do we get around that? You know, what, what can we do? We've all had doubts. I'm sure we have all, if we're honest with ourselves and with, with one another and with God, we've all had doubts from time to time. What do we do? And that's what we looked at last week. Well, this week is a little bit after that, and Jesus is going to appear again to his disciples. He had told his disciples to go to Galilee, to the place where most of them had come from, the Sea of Galilee. You're familiar with that uh, term in the northern part of Israel, the only freshwater uh, lake, uh, water source in Israel. He had told them to go there and wait for him. And we'll see exactly what they did. 
John 21, verses 1 through 14. I want you to put on your track shoes because our rest is over and we're going to be running. Uh, there's lots of scriptures to cover. Um, I will try to direct you to those scriptures in, in your Bibles. Most of them are on the screens. You can get a Bible from up here and follow along on your on your. Uh, smartphones or iPads or whatever you have as well. Um, I didn't put all of these in, in your handout this week, but I did put this first one, which is our focal point. John 21, verses 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. There's actually a bunch of names for the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Gennesaret, Sea of Kinnereth, the small sea. They gathered by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Remember, that means twin, so he had a twin somewhere. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee. Cana is where the first miracle that Jesus performed when he started his ministry took place. He changed bath water into excellent wine. The sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. And if you're counting, that's seven. That's seven of the original twelve. Only, only uh, 11 are left. Judas has, has committed suicide, so there's 11 at this point, and seven of them are gathered together right here. I'm going to go fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. <laughs> uh, I think we have a picture of a fishing boat, much like what they would have used in those days at the Sea of Galilee. Doesn't look like much of a boat to me. But that was how they made their livelihood. So they went out and got into the boat, and they fish at night. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Not a few. Not even sure, Ed, that they had a bite. They caught nothing, it says. Nothing. And then the sunrise came over the Sea of Galilee. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Who do we have here? Oh, you know John. He looks a little different these days, doesn't he? Yeah, he, I thought he was going to get arrested when he went to Israel that time because he looked like one of the terrorists. Um, and my wife, and we're standing at the place where all this took place. And right there's the shoreline. You can see it's rocky out here. The, la the lake, the Sea of Galilee's here. And there is a beach of sorts where it would be possible to uh, build a fire and cook fish and, you know. They did no sun tanning in those days. I'm sure they got plenty of that uh, out on the, on, the, on the sea. He called, this is Jesus, he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? 
In other words, didn't you catch anything? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. This is how I know that Jesus was a conservative. Because he said, throw it on the right side of the boat. He could have easily said, throw it on the left side of the boat, and it would have filled up the net there just as well. But he said, on the right side. Uh, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Even today, you can see some uh, fishermen, not many. Every time we go, there's fewer and fewer, but fishermen still using nets to catch the fish in the Sea of Galilee. And when they did, when they threw the net on the right side, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who did we decide that is? John, the guy that's writing the story. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off to do the work that night, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. If you've been camping and you can smell that campfire with the fresh bacon or fresh fish or meat that you've just caught... There's nothing quite like it. They saw a fire of burning coals with the fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. Now, I think it's interesting, and they they didn't tell us this, but they couldn't haul the net in because... It was too heavy, too many fish. But Simon Peter jumps on board and drags the net ashore. It must have been a surge of energy. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even with so many, the net was not torn. He didn't say about 150. He said 153. You see, every single fish, every single person is important to our Lord. He's not going to miss a one of them. So he wanted to be specific that it was 153. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. As I was reading this, I was thinking about that time when Jesus fed 5,000 men with bread and fish. Just a few loaves. And a few fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
So my question this morning is, what do you do when Jesus says, come, come? How do you respond? What is it that you do? And here they are, this group of seven, holding together as if they were still a special group with a unique bond, which indeed they were. You see, Jesus had risen from the dead, and that drew them together unlike any others. Well, what were they doing? They were doing the only thing that they knew how to do. They were serving in ministry with Jesus. He died. He was buried. He, raised, he was raised from the dead. And they went back to fishing. That's what we tend to do. Go back to the things that we're comfortable with, isn't it? Instead of staying the course. The only other thing that they knew how to do other than ministry with Jesus was... Fishing. Peter was impatient, as we know. He always was impatient. Rather than wait inactively for Jesus to appear, Peter proposed that they do a little, uh, little fishing. After all, they knew how to fish, and this would be a cinch. It'd be a cinch. We all know how to fish. This, this would be fun. Let's just go out there and catch some fish. The idea seemed good to the others, so off they went for a night of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. But the scripture says that night they caught nothing. Peter hadn't exactly disobeyed Jesus' command when Jesus said, go to Galilee and wait for me. You see, Peter was waiting, and he was in Galilee, but he catches absolutely nothing until Jesus comes and directs his work, tells him what to do and where to do it. Jesus had called them, we saw a little film clip last week, I believe, that had this in it. Jesus had called them to be fishers of men. But that meant to obey him, to fish wherever he sent them and for whomever he sent them. So there was a great object lesson for them all. Do it your way and you'll be unsuccessful. Do it my way, and I'll provide more than you could possibly imagine. Oh, and by the way, when they obeyed his instructions and participated in the blessing of this big catch of fish, they made a great discovery also. They discovered that this man on the shore cooking fish was indeed the Lord, their Lord, Jesus Christ. Have you made that discovery yourself? Have you? Have you made that discovery? That discovery is made only as you obey Christ's commands. 
It isn't something just falls into your lap. It's as we begin to obey, we make that discovery. You see, Christ Jesus may seem distant to you right now. He may seem unreal to you right now. And this is natural. It's a natural thing. Because sin separates us from Him. We're apart from Him. But if you will obey Him, He will work in your life, and you will find Him as surely as those disciples did on that morning on the Sea of Galilee. And there's no greater discovery than that. No greater discovery than finding Jesus as your Lord and Savior. A group of students asked the uh, great doctor and inventor, Sir James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform, what we call ether, that they used to use for many, 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 many years to put you to sleep when you're going to have a, a, a surgery so that you could have surgeries without it being painful. They asked him, Sir James, what do you consider to be the most outstanding discovery that you've ever made? And Dr. Simpson replied, young men, the greatest discovery I have ever made is that Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. That is by far the most important thing a person can ever come to know. It's a great scientist. He had studied the facts. He had looked at it logically, scientifically, and he had come to the conclusion that Jesus was who he said he was. And he accepted him as his Lord and Savior. Well, I want to take us to a few um, statements that Jesus made throughout his ministry. Statements that I feel are important to us today and will be important to us not only today but in the future uh, one of those statements is found in the scripture that we just looked at the others are from different points in his ministry as you will see Jesus asks us to come to him he invites us if you will to come to him and the first thing that he invites us to do is come and see. That film clip that we saw last week showed this. Let me take you to John chapter 1, verse 35. And I've selected some verses there. I'm going to be skipping around, so if you're looking in your Bible, it won't go straight through, but I'll try to keep you up with where we are. John 1, 35. The next day, and this is talking about the day after Jesus was baptized... John was there again, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying Verse 39, come and you will see, Jesus replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. 
Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. See, they're, they're telling their buddies, their best friends, their, their relatives. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see. Philip said, come and see. This is the only one of the invitations that we're going to look at today that is directed to everybody. Everybody. All peoples everywhere. When God calls people to faith, he's issuing a genuine invitation, which is at the same time, a command to them. It's not a demand, but it's a command. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And if we do not come, it isn't because we weren't invited. Remember that. When he says come and see, he's inviting you. And if you don't come, it's not because he didn't send you an engraved invitation. He did. It's because you are too stubborn. It's because you are too sinful. It's because you are too rebellious. And Jesus always approaches every one of us at his or her own level. He speaks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus from the, from the court, uh, the legal court in the church there in uh, Jerusalem. He speaks to him on an intellectual level because Nicodemus is an intellectual person. He speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well on the level of her need as a sinner. And in terms of an image that she can relate to that will mean something to her. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He meets the nobleman in chapter 4 and the multitude in chapter 6 and the man born, of, born blind in chapter 9, all of this in the book of John, on the level of their physical need. He reaches Mary simply by the utterance of her name. Mary. That's all he had to say. And Thomas, who we looked at last week, by the invitation to make reality out of the resurrection. Put your hands into the nail holes. Put your hand in my side. You see, God stoops to our level individually when he gives his call 
to our lives. God will meet you on your own ground, wherever it is that you are. You don't have to do anything fancy. You don't have to dress up in churchy clothes. You don't have to get all cleaned up first before you come to Him. He's going to meet you right where you are. Secondly, Jesus invites us and asks us to come and learn. Come and learn. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me. This is what we just read earlier. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you can find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a wonderful truth in there. I mean, there's, there's so many things. We could, we could spend a week or two weeks on this one verse right here. There's a wonderful truth. No one need to be an intellectual giant to understand the gospel. You don't have to be a genius to understand the gospel and to become wise in spiritual matters. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes that interferes with our ability to accept the gospel. Although the wise are not excluded... God has chosen, it says, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. If you will come, you will find Jesus. And you will find that He, that Jesus, is a wonderful teacher. He's wise and He's kind. He's patient. He will teach you what you most need to know. And what you need to know, Stephen Eddy, may be entirely different from what uh, Joe Hodgkiss back here needs to know. But he knows what each one of us needs, and he will give that to us. And if you will come to him and allow him to teach you, You're going to soon excel in that wisdom which is pleasing to God, the Scripture says. Now, I know many Christ followers that are like that, both here and in foreign countries, who have never earned any sort of formal academic degree. They're Christ followers. They're genuine Jesus-loving people. Some don't even speak good English. Some may live in Appalachia somewhere. But they are wise spiritually because they have learned from Him. They've learned from Jesus, who is wisdom Himself. They're much smarter than most of us. I love to be around those people. The third thing Jesus invites us to is to come and rest. Come and rest. Mark 6.31 says, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. 
Every so often, every so often you meet a Christ follower who thinks that he has to do the whole thing by himself. And who works so hard that he has a nervous breakdown. Usually a person like this has a theological reason for his behavior, though. He believes that if he doesn't work at the pace that he's working, someone else might be lost out there in the kingdom. He thinks that if he doesn't speak to 10 or 20 people each day, those 10 or 20 people might go to hell. He thinks that if he doesn't raise an extra $100,000 for the budget, the bills won't get paid. The salaries won't be met. The workers won't be sent to the mission fields. And those living in foreign lands will be lost. He carries this great burden on his shoulders, and it's just too much for him. And he breaks under the stress. Rest with the Lord is the only answer to that situation. The only answer. And any drugs and counselors that the Lord may send your way. It's a tremendous thing to come to the realization that when I do my part of the work with excellence... I can say, Lord, it's up to you now. I've done all I can do. The fourth thing, the fourth invitation, the fourth ask from Jesus is come and eat. Come and eat. This is the one we see in our scripture from today. Uh, John 21, 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. In some other translations, it says, come and eat, come and dine, come and sup with me. The disciples had been fishing all night, and they were tired, and they were hungry. But when they came to land, they found that Jesus had already prepared a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. Oh, man, that smells so good wafting out across the lake. He invited them to come and eat. Even when he was not with them from day to day, he still provided for them. And you know what? He continues to do that today for each one of us. This invitation involves fellowship with Jesus and not just physical provisions of fish. You see, in Bible times, eating always suggested fellowship. If you, if you go to a Jewish house today, you can plan on spending three hours there for dinner. Because it's a time of fellowship. It's more about the fellowship than it is about the food, however good the food might be. You talk to one another. You get to know one another. You share stories. They love to share stories with one another. 
For us today, eating is often a sandwich and a glass of milk on the way out the door or a hamburger from a drive-thru that we eat in the car going here, there, yon. That simply wasn't possible in biblical times. Meals required preparation. Think about the Thanksgiving meal. How much much time do you spend making a Thanksgiving meal? I mean, it doesn't just happen unless you go over to some place and buy the meal already done. It doesn't just happen. There's a lot of planning and gathering and preparing and cooking and putting it on the nice plates and putting the best chinaware out and... You know, it's an event. Consequently, to eat with a person was to have fellowship with that person. And fellowship and communion mean exactly the same thing. The same Greek word is used for both, koinonia. What is the church after all? But one great fellowship. One great time to get together. Jesus invites us to his table so that we might fellowship with him and with each other. Sometimes I mention that this is the communion of the saints. In some In some way that I can't understand, I can't explain to you, when we come to this table to have communion with Him, we are having communion with those who have gone before us, the martyrs of centuries past. We're all together fellowshipping around His table. Now, some Christians are going to heaven absolutely miserably. And others are going to heaven with the joy of heaven in their hearts and on their faces. You know them. What's the difference in the two? Those with the joy of heaven in their hearts and on their faces have learned to come and dine with Jesus and with each other to fellowship with Him, and to fellowship with other Christians. And if you lack joy today, I would say take the time to fellowship with Him. It's important. Spend time with Jesus in His Word. I promise you, He will speak to you from His Word and show you the meaning of true Christian fellowship. One of the neat things we've learned here is when we change the, the <clears throat> service times, aside from getting a lot of people complaining because we moved it a half an hour earlier, you know what, um, is that after this service, people stick around and talk to one another. And when it was even a half hour later, people were in such a rush to get out the door. They didn't stop and talk. But now we stop to meet and greet and, oh, how are you doing? I I remember you from Alpha. How are things going? How's your sister that we were praying for? You know, and, and there's a real community taking place. 
in our church. There's one more invitation, though. One more invitation. Jesus asks, he invites us to come and take your inheritance. Come and take your inheritance. Now, none of us has heard this invitation yet. But we will hear it one day. I promise. If we are truly children of God. In Matthew 25, Jesus is doing a sermon on the Mount of Olives right before, uh, right before his uh, death and, and, and burial. And he's talking to the people there about the separation of the goats. The goats were going to the left. The sheep were going to the right. You see, again, Jesus was a conservative um, goats on the left, sheep on the right. And he comes to this part of the sermon that says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Wow. To those who have known him, to those who have been changed by him, the Lord says, Come, come, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared just for you. We don't have much of inheritance now. None of us, even the richest of us. Or if we do... That inheritance is destined to pass away. Everything that we know here on this earth, except the Word of God, will pass away. Scripture promises that. But there is an inheritance that's laid up for us. There is a kingdom that's laid up for us, and we will surely inherit both of them if we are Jesus' people. And when I read this, I can't help but think of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, in which the Apostle Paul, one of, one of Jesus' uh, apostles who, who came on board after uh, his ascendance to heaven, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, in a letter to Timothy, writes of his hope about this inheritance. And these words from Paul come at the end of his life. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been imprisoned. Yet, he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Paul saying to Timothy, to you, to me, that he has invested his life in Jesus. That's his portfolio. 
Forget the 401ks. His portfolio is in Jesus. He has laid up his treasure where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And now Paul comes to the end of his long life. And he knows, he knows that Jesus has never, ever disappointed him. And Jesus will never, ever disappoint anyone else who trusts in him. Not even you. He says, come and see. He says, come and learn. He says, come and rest. He says, come and eat with me. He says, come, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, your word that's never changing and ever true. The place that we can run to when there's a problem in our lives. The place where you furnish every answer before we even ask it. I thank you that if we trust in you, if we obey your commands... that we will receive an inheritance that I can't even think of, I can't even imagine, a kingdom, an entire kingdom prepared for us already from the foundations of the earth, from even before creation began. That's how much you love us. And if there's anyone here today that needs to turn their trust over to Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be done before they leave today. Our ministry teams will be on either side as we uh, come to the table for communion. And they would love to pray with anyone who has a question about this trust in Jesus Christ. Come, come Holy Spirit, direct us for the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.